podcast may not be suitable for all audiences. Discretion is advised. Keep in mind that what you hear on Cold Truth, it is subjective. It is based on the perceptions of myself, the interviewees, and what is available to us, the public. We are not law enforcement. We are not prosecutors or judges. They are the ones, the only ones, that are tasked with the responsibility of serving out justice. My goal is to tell these stories to the best of my abilities and to gather as many facts backed up by documentation as I can. And if I cannot, and it is speculation or a scenario that I am discussing, you will know it. Welcome back to Cold Truth. If you have not listened to episode two, please do so now as this is an extension of the last episode. It will pick up right where we left off in episode two. You will be hearing from one of Shannon's friends and case talk between myself and my dad, Dapper Dad. When discussion time with Dapper Dad starts, I would like to forewarn any family members or close friends. There are things that we are going to be discussing that you might not want to hear. I just don't want you to be in the middle of listening and it shock you and for it to upset you in any way. That is not my intent. We will just simply be discussing the ins and outs of the case. So let's get started. When she first went missing, everyone looked, they searched, but my parents tried to keep us sheltered. Like we were very upset with them because they they wouldn't let us be involved in anything. So they had a a candlelight vigil at Candlestick at the Palm. It was shortly after she went missing. There should be some newspaper clippings about it. Yeah, but when I found out, well, when I found out when she, her body was found was at my aunt's house with my, my cousin. What was your first thought when you first heard she was missing? Were you alarmed? Did it scare you? Nothing like that had ever happened. So we just thought she would come back. You know, maybe she went to the store with somebody or they just didn't know where she was and she'd come back and she never did. It was, we were shocked. Yeah. But we just never thought that she would never come back. So when from 2001 to 2006 papers really covered the story. Well, mm-hmm. of course, you know, then nine 11 happens right yep. in the middle. Do you, how do you think that affected the search? It kind of, I felt like after nine 11 happened, it just was forgotten about. Everyone was so scared about, you know, what could happen with that, that I just feel like you just faded off. And mm-hmm. after that, I don't think I ever really heard anything else about it. Everyone just went quiet about it, and they still are. Do you remember hearing your parents talk? I know you didn't live there because you guys moved literally the day and the day before she was taken. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Was there e- even a thought that she had been taken by a stranger? Do you remember the girls that or boys, whoever came up with a sketch? Do you remember anything about that? I'm not sure who came up with the sketch, but when it did happen, our parents sat us down and they did ask, who do you think did it? And we automatically said the root beer man. Something about the root beer man that we didn't feel right about. But then there was talk among the adults and children eavesdrop and listen. And that's when another name come about. And then that's when our thoughts changed. 
it could either be this person or this person. It was the root beer man and Ty Foster. And Shannon was no stranger to no one. But with that trailer park, everyone knew everyone. And if there was someone that no one, it would be alarming. Someone would see it. Someone would have seen it. That was such a close-knitted community. Phone calls would have been made. Hey, there's this white truck coming down the road. I've never seen it before. You and your sister and Shannon, when you wandered a little too far and ended up at a softball game, well, they sent you back home, but they also let your parents know, hey, they weren't where we know they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be. That's how close everyone was. You already have past experiences from your childhood that lead you to your conclusion of no one's just going to come in there in the Mm -hmm. middle of day and take a little girl. No. Mm -hmm. People would notice They would notice a stranger. They would. Do you ever remember Shannon being friendly with the mailman, the FedEx guy, the UPS guy? People like that wouldn't necessarily stand out. The mail person, I believe, was a woman. I don't even think we even had an ice cream man. And there was a lot of people at home that day. And there was other people that were out and about. I mean, you guys were there at least sometime during the morning. We know that Shannon was already not at home. So sometime after 5.30 a.m. when you guys arrived, she had already left her home. Maybe four different people that she visited that day, but yet nobody saw her go anywhere. Nobody saw her leave. What do you think is the most likely scenario of knowing Shannon and knowing you know, just who she was as a person? Like If someone did come in, you know, drive through in a, in a truck, And ask a question like, hey, you know, have you seen this dog? What would be her response to something like that? To be honest, if she had a a place she wanted to go or or anything set in mind, you know, they just conversated with her because she she could hold a conversation with with anybody. If they offered, if anybody did come in that park and offer her a ride somewhere, she would hop in the car. Even if she didn't know who the person was? You think? Dude, that's the thing. At the time, that's a really tough question because no one ever came in the park that didn't belong there. And they had to have something good in in order to draw her in. But I'm pretty sure if she really, really wanted to go somewhere and she was trying to find a way all day, then she probably would have hopped in the car. My thought about the whole thing is somebody had to see something. It really is crazy to think that I don't know. I don't know, Mel. I mean, I just don't know. Like, I know she was friendly. She was always friendly to everyone. I mean, it could be a possibility. It could be a possibility is all I can say. Yeah. And that's the thing is with the case that's unsolved, there's a lot of possibilities that we just don't know. And we try to, you know, you have your facts that don't change, have your variables. Yeah. So inside of that variable of applying Occam's razor, which is just whatever is the most reasonable explanation. I don't think she ever left the park and no one saw anything. There were so many people home. And if someone were to leave, I mean, there's people that from all different times of the day, they're like, well, I saw this neighbor. I don't want to say names, but I saw them leave at three o'clock. I saw them leave at 10. People watch. So even if someone left, like they would have, I think they would have noticed that like, hey, around one o'clock, this person, but that leads to the question of why didn't the police find her when they were there around nine o'clock? I never saw the police. I mean, well, we weren't there, but 
They never um, questioned me or my siblings. Never. Looking back, do you find that odd now that you were never questioned? Oh, yeah, most definitely, because your answers are going to lie with who's the closest to her. And we were we were very close. We weren't family, but I believe that we, you know, it's been so many years now. It's been almost 20. There may be a lot of things that I, I don't remember, but there are that I do remember. I could have had something that they could have used at that time, and now it's gone parts that I remember and that set out to me something happened for me to remember that. I mean, I can only give them information that I have now, but what if I had something more? Even then, when I was 11, I I was pretty sure they were going to come to the school and ask me some questions, but it it never happened. I find that very odd because there can be a couple reasons for why. Do you think your parents didn't consent to allow you guys to talk or they just didn't think to ask her parents didn't know you guys that well didn't tell them hey you need to go talk to you and your sister they did mm -hmm. i asked my mom and dad of that almost that particular question why you know why didn't you let us talk to the police and they said they never they never asked to talk to you shannon's mom and sisters would think to say hey you guys need to go talk to you and your sister i'm pretty sure we were mentioned probably more likely by lisa nothing we never got anything so weird in the very beginning of things you know especially within a certain age range you know they're probably just out wandering around you know maybe they got lost you know maybe they're at a friend's house Mm -hmm. so you can play that game for hours precious time then when you finally do call the police they're not aware of all of the hours they're not living through those hours with you that your child is missing when they finally did call the police at nine o'clock to them when they come in they're like oh well you know she's probably at a friend's house then that see what i'm saying that repeat of exactly what her mom probably thought her sister's probably over at this person's house that person's house which is a matter of like trying to find her not very worried. And then it comes dinner time. Okay, well, that's kind of weird. You wouldn't be alarmed. You wouldn't be that scared. But then when it starts getting dark, then you're freaking out. And then you're calling everybody you know. We have to call the police. And I think some parents avoid that too. I think it's, it's not an intentional thing by any means. It's a coping mechanism that our brain does because we just can't handle the fact that We have to call the police. Once you Mm -hmm. call the police, it makes it, it just instantly heightens the fear. If you call, then you're admitting that something bad happened. Yep. And maybe that was the reason that by the time the police got there at around nine, everybody seems to be able to agree on that. Then they started over and they're repeating it all. And then they're not immediately alarmed to where... Everybody has to get caught up to each other at some point. Assuming by the next morning is when, okay, this isn't the kind of little girl that would just not come home. I mean, she's 11. There are some witnesses that came forward and told the police that they saw this man. Have you seen the sketch of this man? What do you make of that sketch? I feel like I feel like I've seen him on a movie or something. <laughs> like when that sketch came out, we all looked at each other in confusion, like we've never seen this person before. Like that's nobody in the trailer park, and you know, we started thinking, like that's no one at the school, and we didn't, we didn't know what thing. We're like, we don't, but we, we believed it was, it was true because the police put it out. So yeah, you know, we we thought it was true. Okay, so here's what happened. 
Dapper Dad discussion. We actually had two separate discussions about this episode. And one was before my dad had listened to the episode. In the first segment, you'll hear me recounting to him what I had heard in the interviews and all of the information I had gathered. After you hear that, you'll hear my ice-breaking sound. Hopefully, it sounds like ice-breaking. And then you'll hear my dad and I discussing pretty much the same things, but in light of the information that was gleaned from part one episode of We Can't Find Shannon. As I was trying to edit all of this, it's been ta- it's taken me all week. I will never recount to him what is in the episodes. He will just hear the episode and then we will discuss it after the episode airs so that nothing is missed. But for this one, it's never going to get out with me trying to clip these audios and put them in the position that they're supposed to be in in the conversation that we had before. So you're going to get to hear Dapper Dad discussion two times. So sorry about that, but I figured it's better to get the episode out than to spend two more weeks trying to figure out where everything goes. And trust me, I will never make that mistake again, but y'all know very first episode I did on Shannon was the very first podcast I've ever done in my life, and I have no training other than an online course, so fully aware that a lot of the information repeats. Thank you for listening anyways. We do know that a walker was found in, in the it neighborhood. Was, exactly, yeah. There, the pond is right by the entrance. There's just a little neighborhood pond with a. It used to have a running fountain in the middle. It's a real pretty park, and it seems like the park kind of died right along with Shannon. It's very sad to look at it then and to look at it now. The walker was found on the road, but near the curb. The weird thing is, is we have a witness that saw Shannon. Her name was Mary, and Mary has passed on. Yeah. And that day, usually, you know, Shannon had been walking around. She'd at least seen other people. Her sister's name is Lisa. She was 16 at the time. She was the only one that was home. She does not report to have seen Shannon at all that day. Her mom saw her when she left for work at 5.30 a.m., kissed her on the forehead, and left to go to work, took Caleb, which is her grandson that that was living with them at that time so shannon's nephew took him to the babysitter and then went on to work and she's not seen by family members past that shows up to mary's who lived right around the pond her home was on giants but it's literally right around the pond and Mary was outside on her porch, but she had to get ready to go to an appointment. Her daughter was picking up for a doctor's appointment. And so she told Shannon she couldn't hang out with her that day. She had to go. So Shannon had the walker with her. Miss Mary saw Shannon walking across the street towards Expos, so headed north, with the walker. And she saw her walk up to the house that was directly across from Miss Mary's around the pond. And they were not home. So then Mary sees her walking towards her home with the walker on her head. Now, you know know what a baby walker is, right? Yes. Okay, so they're not super heavy, but they're awkward. Mm -hmm. And I could see a kid, you know, carrying, and I could see where that would stand out to Miss Mary to remember, like, look at her. She's so silly, carrying that on her head. But she had been told to go pick the walker up. 
So the last person that is known to have seen Shannon lived on Expos right at the corner. So basically, Shannon walked to Mary Green's to the all circling the pond to head back towards her home on Expos. Stops at home, which was three houses before she would have got to her home. Knocks on their door and she wanted to play with a dog that she had found and she wasn't allowed to keep it but they kept it for her and she wanted to play with the dog well his two stepsons and him were the only ones home and he needed to get ready for work and he needed to leave by i think 115 so he goes comes to the door after his boys who were friends with shannon and tells her you know she can't play with the dog she can't come in because his wife's not home and that he needs to get ready for work so shannon leaves And that's the last time anyone sees Shannon. But the walker was found in front of the home. That to me is what's so strange. Why would she not take this walker back to her house that was less than 35 feet from the At least put it in the driveway instead of carrying it back around. So that, and he saw the Mr. The one that saw the walker. When he was leaving for work, after he had seen it around 1.15, another neighbor, Miss Pregnant, and she thought someone had just set it out there for the trash man, so she picked it up and took it home and cleaned it up. And I don't know, that that walker to me just seems so odd. I just feel like that... How far was the walker from her house? From where it was found? Yeah. Oh, I would say no more than 1,000 feet. Maybe 2,000 feet? It was away from her house. It was almost her own house, but the walker ended up 1,000 feet from the ha- a different direction. Yeah, I'll have to look at it. But so Shannon lived on Expos, and from Expos, it was Dodgers is the main road. That Dodgers is the road that the pond circles around, that Mary Green, all live on the corner of Dodgers and Expos. The other three lived around Dodgers. They have they may have had a different street, but their homes are around the pond, which was Dodgers. So Shannon lived three houses in from the that's what's odd. She'd already walked that way. Why would she just continue and I mean it's this is August. It was hot and humid and she's carrying this big walker around. Why would she not just go put it on her port, take it inside, and then go about trying to find someone else to hang out? Well, you would have to think that at that point, uh, the triangle of where she stood and where it ended up in her house, that somewhere in that time frame that her attention was diverted to a different direction. She carried it to wherever, like, say, for instance, if that if the guy that abducted her was out there on the street in his car and he said, hey, little girl, hey, come here, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And so she went walking that way and. That's a good point because the front door was right on Dodgers. If she had saw someone, you know, that had pulled up that maybe she knew them, I don't think she would have gone from everything that everybody says about her. Yeah, she was a very trusting child from all we've just heard them say. And she loved people. She loved everyone. I don't think she would be rude to anyone. But I don't necessarily think she would have got in a car with a complete stranger. 
without making a sound. I don't, you know, you never know. Yeah, you don't know. But yeah, you're right. If someone had been like, hey, can you come down here? I got my dog. I can't find my dog. She probably would have taken, she wouldn't have taken the time to go back home with the walker. Yeah, you're Right. right. My thing with the walker is either what you just said happened or someone planted it there to get it away from their home. Seems kind of unlikely, but... Why do you think that? Because I think if I was uh, someone that was not about doing good, wouldn't want to even mess with it. Wouldn't want to touch it, you mean? Yeah, would even care about it, just leave it. Yeah, but say she went into a home and she never came out, and this walker is there, and they know that people have seen her around around the neighborhood with the walker, or they could have seen her. That home near the walker? I would think that would be a pretty obvious investigation that had to have went on. Well, the thing was is the police did eventually find out about that, and it was within like three or four days. But unfortunately, because Miss she didn't know, she had picked it up and took it home. And when she saw and heard what had gone on, that's when she told the family, oh my goodness, you know, like I, there was a walker on the road by the curb and I, I just thought it was someone putting it out for trash and I picked it up. And that's when they realized that it was Caleb's and that Shannon had been the one that had it that day. So yeah. within a couple days... Jeanette had gone to her home and picked up the walker and it had been cleaned and I don't think they would have found any evidence. I sure hope they tried. She had to take the walker to them. They, I don't know that they really investigated it very much. They said, well, it's been cleaned and moved now. It doesn't really do us any good. You would think that having two witnesses that saw it there, one being one of your own Prattville Police Department officers, that they would look into that pretty closely. And maybe they have, and the family just doesn't know. Yeah. And maybe she did. The app came back home. They waved, you know, waved at her, and she just got excited about seeing them and, and went right back. And that's why it was at the curb. The goal was to take the walker home, and it ends up going the opposite direction. So she had to have been the one that carried it there. Yeah. That's Occam's razor. That makes the most sense is that where the walker was was carried there by Shannon. And that is where Shannon went missing from. I think there's a high percentage of that. Sounds like to me. I just really felt like whoever did this to Shannon, she knew them. And they didn't stand out in Candlestick. And the only people that wouldn't stand out in Candlestick are the people that live there. I've asked about UPS, FedEx, the mail. It was the it was a mail lady. I'm sure UPS and things like that delivered, but they didn't see a lot of that, and I think they would have even noticed that. But anything, anyone coming in there, I think, unless it just happened to have been a sliver of time that no one saw had to have lived there, had to have had a reason to be there that did not stand out, which really limits our suspect pool quite a bit. Yeah. And, you know, depends on the timing. I mean, people are not, especially on a hot day, are probably not outside. They're probably inside and their house is in air conditioning or whatever, you know. And just by happenstance, there wasn't anybody that seen anything at that exact moment. Because how long does it take to abduct somebody, you know? Seconds. So somebody would have had to be there within a time frame of 
10 or 20 seconds. And it just could have been a, just a happenstance that nobody was available to put their eyes on anything at that very moment. Yeah. And I, and if Shannon had have, had have screamed, I think for sure someone would have heard that. Um, Are trailer homes known to be very insulated? No. I didn't think so. Not in Alabama. Yeah, because they don't really have to worry about what we have to worry about here in Indiana. (laughs) Cold. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But someone would have heard if she had screamed or there had been a fight. There was no disturbance in the road other than the walker. There wasn't like screeching tire tracks down the road or gravel dispersed or any kind of sign of anything that happened. She was just there and then she was gone. Yeah, which kind of lends the fact that she probably got willingly in a car or walked away with somebody. I think so, too. But then again, you know, it's, it's conjecture. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so many, there's a bunch of different possibilities. It's just trying to find right. a few that we can really concentrate on and pick apart with the help of her neighbors, friends, and family. To see if we can come up with anything. But I think it sounds from all of the interviews we've heard. It does sound like Shannon was a very friendly, very outgoing, never met a stranger, very trusting child. She just wanted everyone to be happy. And she had been asking neighbors to take her to get candy. So maybe that was something that she still wanted to do. Maybe someone drove by and like, hey, what are you doing? And she asked them if they could take her. And she knew them maybe by proxy. Maybe it was she knew their kids or she knew their wife or something like that. And she would probably, she's been explained by all of the family members that I have talked to so far, including her mother, that she probably would have gone with someone in that she probably had to have known at least a little bit she would have had to known her attacker which is just heartbreaking and it's probably one of the reasons why candlestick is no longer what it used to be i can't imagine still living there every man in there had to have been under scrutiny scrutiny yeah and just suspicious eyes and there were a couple suspects that they did zero in on in the beginning and thereafter. And you know how investigations go. They always kind of, you know, when you have search warrants and things and you end up finding other cases. Other cases were made out of, there were two. Um, One's name was Jack Gibson and he was known as the root beer man. Now I will tell you that Jack Gibson lived right across from the app on Dodger's Maybe two homes down from that's where his home was. So the walker was found across from his home as well. And he was later indicted. They had found child pornographic pictures when they had, they had to get a search warrant for his home. And so he was charged with that. The papers do say that he's covered, I guess. You know, they're not looking at him as a, a suspect. The other man, Ty Foster, he lived 
on Astro's, which is kind of the very back part of Candlestick. And he was the maintenance man of Candlestick. He worked for Corky's Homes, which was the owners of the park. And he was indicted later on charges against children. But the odd thing with him, and they did have to get a search warrant to search his home, and they did find Shannon's blood in his home. He had two kids, and his kids were friends with Shannon. Very close friends, actually. And I have pulled that man's records, and there are a lot. There are a lot. But they go nowhere. It's like they charged him with everything under the sun, and just to try to get something to stick, and nothing did. He was sentenced to seven years and 36 months, seven years suspended for assault. He was not charged with any kind of sex crimes against children. He is not a registered sex offender. He was only charged with assault, domestic assault. And it doesn't help that her body wasn't found until six weeks later. Most of her body was skeletonized. I'm not sure that they had a lot to work with. I think they had physical evidence, but I'm just not sure that they had forensic type DNA lab. And this was in 2001 as well. And I I am pushing major for all of the items that they have in cold case storage to be tested again and apply the genetic genealogy, forensic genealogy, to those samples. I have heard from a few different sources that they were able to find mitochondrial DNA of the suspect. They have some type of a profile. So to me, if it, and they they have Jack Gibson, Ty Foster's DNA, does it not match? Well, it sounds like there's some huge questions here that need to be answered. I mean, you can't get around it. It just has to be answered. So if it's going to move forward I know. in any clear direction. Yeah, and that's the thing is, with back to Ty Foster, her it was a nosebleed. Mm-hmm. Her family does report that she did get nosebleeds. So I would think that they would be able to tell how fresh that blood was. Yeah. Or at least be able to put like a timeline on when it could have been deposited there. And it must have made sense to them that it could have happened the way that he reported it. And the fact that she did have nosebleeds and the fact that she played with his kids all the time. I just wonder if... Wouldn't you have to logically say that the blood in the house... It could have been direct evident or indirect evident, but because that she was known to be in the house on multiple occasions makes the blood not really admissible in, in a trial. So maybe that's why it's so up in the air. They can't, I mean, he could have been the one that done it, but they can't prove he done it. I don't know. I just feel like crazy. <laughs> he is the scapegoat. They have all oh. these charges and I think he was just the easiest one to target, him and, and Jack Gibson, because yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can see why they were targeted, by their histories. Yeah, I mean, people are unstable in all their ways, not just one thing. Yeah, and it does tell us that whatever they did find at the crime scene when her body was found, it must 
they must have thought that there was a it was a sexually motivated crime because they were looking into child sex offenders. And even though Ty Foster was thrown out, that was why he was thrown in the mix and listed as a suspect. The other man, McElroy, he was questioned sometime later. I, I have the date somewhere. And he lived in the mobile home park as well. He lived, and he actually lived on the street behind Miss Mary, interestingly enough. And he was questioned. They took his DNA, and he was indicted and charged with child pornography. They say he is cleared. But they're looking at sexual predators. So I think that tells us of who they are, because they know way more than we do. They must right. think that this is was a kidnapping and the purpose of the kidnapping was for some kind of a sexual deviant against a child. But you never know. You know, like I know in other cases, that's where they have to start. They start there. And when it involves a child, you start with the family. And then the next step they do is they go to what sex offenders were living in the area. And then from there, they branch out from there. You know, I've yeah. seen that in other cases where the perpetrators actually ended up being the girl's best friend. But mm-hmm. they had to go through all of those first things first. And that's just how you run an investigation. And the family was questioned extensively in the, that beginning time. But yet, their home was not processed. That's odd to me. Mm. Yeah, that's odd. There's just a lot of odd things that they did or that they didn't do. And that they haven't done since. I think that happens a lot in lots of investigations. Seems like I've, been, I've kind of noticed that. What do you mean? Cops and investigators are human beings. They drop the ball so often, it seems like. And I think that they thought that they were on to something in the very beginning while she was still missing and zeroing in on the man depicted in that sketch in those cars. I mean, they went through 5,000 driver's licenses. 5,000. And they had whittled it down somehow with that big blockhead-looking hairy mole man. Found at least a hundred that they were still looking at at the time of the newspaper article that looked enough like the sketch to give them a closer look other than their driver's license. So going through 5,000 driver's license, I think that they spent a lot of their time on that. There was search dogs and the FBI were there, which is pretty fast, but there were search dogs there the next day and and they did drag the pond, found nothing. The search dog was very interested in, and I think that's what ended up leading to the search warrant for Jack Gibson's home. They wanted underneath his house. They, They do say that they took items from Shannon's room like her clothing and the dog smelled it and then he took off and he followed her trail all the way over to some railroad tracks that was right behind remember when we were talking in the beginning about her best friend's story over by that castle yeah they lost her scent right there by that railroad track it's 31 and county road four is where it kind of intersects but they had really circled jack gibson's trailer and they wanted underneath it and then they did take off and they went on down back by the creek and the railroad track kind of you know they run parallel to each other behind candlestick behind that warehouse and that castle was by the creek that they played at and the railroad track county road four and 31 so i don't know i don't i need to really dig in and and do some research on 
tracking dogs and cadaver dogs and how all that works because I really at a loss and there isn't really a lot of information that I've been able to find out about tracking dogs and such online. So I don't know, maybe we're gonna have to find someone we can talk to about it. If he thought he is close to getting caught and it, and he did have her in that bag underneath his trailer, he may have moved it to that location that she was eventually found. Yeah, and he did make some really weird statements to the family the night that they were searching for Shannon and the next day. But, you know, I keep going back to why do they say that he he's not a suspect? Kind of weird because yep. he seems like suspect number one to me. Where the walker was found, his history, him being the root beer man. I mean, he would basically tell the kids he would give them a can of root beer if they came by his house, which is beyond creepy. Shannon's mom did say that she had told her, you know, you don't, don't do that. Like, don't go over there and get anything from him. Like, no. Shannon's older sisters did clean his home for him, and he would pay them. I don't think they took root beer because they were older. But yeah, he would barter with kids and give them candy and root beer and stuff, and they would do chores, which is just creepy. And then it ended up, you know, they did find quite a lot of child pornography. I believe they said there were four victims that were under the age of 12 that he had photos of, and none of them were of Shannon, though. Mm-hmm. No one seems to know, or they're not saying who the other victims were, but at least it, it wasn't Shannon. He didn't mm-hmm. have photos of her. But I'm like, here you've got McElroy a couple streets away from Gibson, Was there some kind of, like, child pornography ring? Were they making it? There's been a lot of rumors about those types of things going on. Yeah, especially it would be more likely back then. Less electronic use back then than now. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of rumors that there was something like that going on. And there's a lot of, there's just a flat out a lot of rumors. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know if I could tell them all, nor do I feel like I should... Because some of them are so outlandish in a podcast. I don't think we would ever have enough time under the sun. The amount of people, which is awesome. You don't hardly ever have a 19-year-old case where so many people are wanting it solved. And they are willing to do just about anything. I've probably spoken to 30 different people. So that's why I'm kind of doing this podcast. Because I don't know who else I could tell all of this information to. Mm-hmm. and then be able to put it out there and to care about it as much as I do. I, mm-hmm. and I, I, don't, I don't mean that in like a narcissistic way. I just, I really care for these families and I want to always do what's right for them. And yeah. so many people have been willing to talk to me and I feel like I owe it to them to do this. And I have tried. I have tried to get other news people, podcasters, you name it. I have John Walsh, you know, like he had run that story. I've reached out to many, many people and I've talked to many people who seem like, oh yeah, we're going to do this. And then they don't. So I just kind of was like, you know what? I think you used to tell me that as a kid, like some saying about doing it yourself, you know, like who else is going to do it? Why not you? This starts part two discussion that Dapper Dad and I had after he had listened to part one of this episode. What do you think about that whole scenario with him uh, mentioning about candy when she had said to somebody else that she wanted to go get candy earlier? And I thought, wait a minute, whoa, stop for a second. That seems so suspicious to me. 
Yeah. And in fact, uh, he was kind of acting funny, like, why wouldn't he open the door wide open to a neighbor? And why was he fully dressed? Yeah. The other question in relation to that, I was asking, was she molested before she was killed? We don't know. By logic, you wouldn't you have to think that to cover up your crime, you wouldn't just let her walk out the door and go home and tell. If she freaked out, then yeah, I think that, you know, Dad, it just depends. You heard me talking about, you know, you have your facts that don't change and then you have your tangibles that are unknown that you have to just kind of fill in the blanks. And unfortunately, we have a lot of those because we're not investigators. Thinking about that, too, since you can't dovetail the invest the real investigation to your fact finding, like you said earlier, so the, you know, the devil's in the details. And yeah. You don't have all the details. Makes it kind of hard. It does. From what I've been able to find out, it was an organization that volunteers to bring their dogs and do searching for missing children and, and other things. Those were not hired or sent there from law enforcement. The guy reached out to the page and from what I've been able to find, they're very reputable. I had found that out and wanted to clear it up, what I had said on the previous episode. They got there around, I think Billy said, within three days. And I've heard from someone else that it was actually not quite two days later, which would make sense because it, you know, they didn't call the police until the 16th at 9 p.m. The next day would have been the 17th for them to arrive on the 18th would have been pretty early. Makes it even more suspicious that the dog circled that and didn't want to leave it alone now that we know that at least 24 hours had gone by there must Mm -hmm. have been a very strong scent yeah and then did the dogs follow the scent away from that trailer till they lost the scent they did they uh finally has been reported to us a straight line they went down by the creek and the railroad track they run kind of parallel behind candlestick And the Uh dogs followed the scent down the creek railroad track area all the way down to County 4. And County 4 intersects with 31 Country Road. There isn't a whole lot on it, but it lost the scent right around there where the railroad tracks, where they went over County Road 4. So right in that area. Which is the same area that Billy and Tammy's sons were shot at. That's mm-hmm. the same road. And it's Correct. only where they were shot at is near, they said, Carl's Country. So when mm-hmm. I Google mapped that, I mean, it's, I think, a maybe a one-minute drive. Right. Which is just odd that here you have the dogs that tracked the scent to this. Okay. Well, then that brings me to what I popped in my mind when I was listening to the dad's testimony about out there at um, that State Road 4. Okay, and so he was talking about that they used to live at another trailer park close to Candlestick before they moved the Candlestick. How far away was that mobile park? It's right behind that Carl's Country, all within four or five minutes of Candlestick. So actually, you got two places where there's possible suspects because somebody at that park knew her too and could have been wandering around the area and picked her up. Yes. There has come about another suspect who lived right by that area as well, to the best of my knowledge. He has not been named by the media in this case, 
but he is being looked at as a suspect in a double murder of two teen sisters in Dover, Tennessee. Mm, interesting. His so, um, dad was a TBI agent, mm-hmm. and I've been listening to their podcast, and they're going to be on mine. Man, that dad is either covering up for himself or his son, but it's, he sent his son away right after that because this murder is old. Settles in Prattville, Alabama for a job. They're friends. They lived in Candlestick. Mm. But his dad died on August 16th of 2001. Interesting. Is that a trigger? Yeah, I mean, you never know. Something like that could be. Anything could be. You know what's interesting to me? There's suspects everywhere. Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's so many suspects, you can't hardly keep them straight. Oh, my Lord. You have no idea. It brings the difficulty of fishing this all out. can understand why the police have a problem as well. I mean, mercy, they're all over the place. I know. How do you find the right one? You know, I know. It's kind of amazing. That's like what I said to Billy. They all can't be the killer. There's only one, yeah. There's only one. I personally have received, I think, poor Detective Sergeant Tom Allen, I... I've probably sent, I sent him a list of names that were tipped into me, and I think there were 14 on that one, and I've sent him an additional two more, and all different suspects. Oh, boy. With, and you know, and when you hear each one, you're like, oh, man, like, pretty convinced, you know, they're pretty convincing that they really could be, feel like... This killer had to have not stuck out. I've said that a million times in Candlestick. Yeah, there's always that chance that someone snuck in in that short time and that Shannon didn't scream, you know, could have tricked her to get in the car. Mm -hmm. But it just feels like the person had to have blended in there well enough that they didn't raise any suspicion. People are nosy. Right. And Shannon knew everyone. Yeah, like you said before, it's amazing that nobody saw anything. It's probably perfect timing. Yeah, if that's true. Yeah. I think some people, for whatever reason, they don't want to get involved and they don't want to say what they know, probably in fear of becoming a suspect themselves. Yep. Or Especially they, if you have a background. Or if they know the suspect and they love that suspect, they don't want to believe it or they're in denial. But if you're a man and you saw anything in Candlestick that day and you come forward, just like what's happened with, we'll just call him Max. Let's just call him Max, the, the last person to see Shannon. His name is not Max, but so we don't have to just stumble over our words, we're going to call him Max. He ended up being a suspect because he was the last person to see her. Is he a viable suspect? I don't know. But what if other people are like Max and they saw what happened to Max and they don't want to come forward because in fear of them becoming a suspect themselves. Exactly. You see it happen all the time with witnesses. And it ruins their lives because even if the police don't think they're a suspect, everyone else does. That can happen. Happens a lot. Yeah. So has the police ever given anybody indication what their prime suspect was? Early on, a little bit in 2017 and 2018, because they the grand jury was, they were trying to keep the grand jury. But from what I found in the papers, in the beginning, they named Jack Gibson and Ty Foster. And then 
one of the papers reports that they are no longer looking at Jack Gibson as a suspect, but they still have never said, and I actually called and asked about Ty Foster because I spoke to him and he wouldn't give me an answer on him, but I didn't figure he would. But I was reading, remember I was telling you about that McElroy guy, the other child pornography Mm -hmm. case that Mm -hmm. came out of Candlestick? So I'm reading in his, because he actually went through the appeal process with that case. Mm -hmm. When a offender does that, a lot of the case details are released in the appeal documents. So inside of those appeal documents, it says that they're investigating him for this child pornography based on a tip from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Mm -hmm. But when the FBI agent saw his picture, he thought that he looked like that sketch. It's no longer a sketch, but that and the fact that he lived in Candlestick right over by Miss Mary, coincidentally enough. And so they wanted to also question him on Shannon Polk's case. Long story short, in the documents, it says that they ask him for his DNA, figure out if, if he had anything to do with Shannon. He agreed to that saying that, He had nothing to do with that, and absolutely they can have his DNA. And then in parentheses, it says, later, that proved to be the case. To me, that tells me that they do have DNA. If that parentheses means that later, that proved to be the case, the only thing in this appeal is that they're asking for his DNA. So, I don't know, it just kind of made me speculate that they have a DNA sample. We have heard from, I've heard from others, no one official, that they had like a mitochondrial DNA sample. But if they were able to clear him as a suspect by his DNA, assuming that's what the appeal document meant, and then they've come out and said that Jack Gibson is no longer a suspect, are they cleared because they don't match the DNA? I questioned that because... I mean, you can get dinosaurs, so it's kind of strange that they wouldn't be able to have it. But, you know, that maybe that makes sense now that you're kind of questioning it, too. Well, I mean, you got to think, in 2001, the technology might not have been there with touch DNA was in 2007 and 9 and 17, whichever, mm-hmm. whichever one of those years, because they're very, I can't seem to get a narrow, like, when did you rerun the DNA? Yeah, but wouldn't the coroner have kept samples so they could run DNA in modern times now? Yes, and it has been run again, and that's why that 2008, possibly they have sample now. But depending on what type of sample it is, it has to meet a certain criteria just to even go Mm -hmm. into CODIS. If you don't have enough of the genetic markers that you can't even upload it to CODIS. Yeah. You can only test it against a suspect's DNA. And it seemed like that's what they were doing with him, McElroy. Mm-hmm. And I He's know the pornography, child pornography guy. One of them. And then Jack Gibson was the other. So um, do you think they ruled out both of these guys? McElroy, it said, you know, that later proved to be the case even if they're not talking about dna they don't think he's a suspect or the appeal document wouldn't have said that 
Yeah. And Jack Gibson, well, they did come out in the paper and say that they were no longer looking at him as a suspect in the murder of Shannon with Ty Foster. They do have his DNA, and I know that they did have Jack Gibson's DNA. And Ty Foster's the pornography no, he was God. the one that they had. He they tried to charge him with everything under the book, and nothing would stick. As far as the only thing they've ever said is when a suspect comes up in like another case, they'll say he's not a suspect in this. Like we've looked into it, it's not. There's been other murders in. I think one was in Florida that it, he tried to confess to it because he wanted the death penalty or something. That's what the newspaper said, and. He, they, he didn't do it. He was lying. Yeah. To get the death penalty. But supposedly. That's strange. Isn't it? <laughs> it's interesting about the, you know, the child pornography. It, it's, you can relate it to how drug addiction is. A person that's addicted to a drug keeps wanting more and more. More often, you know, it just keeps graduating and the child pornography is the same way. You get desensitized and desensitized and wanting more and more until one of the things I was thinking about. It's so gross. So I always listen to this, you know, so. To me, it leads me to think that at least for once they had cleared the family, logically you go to what predators are in the area. But after mm-hmm. they found her body, it seems like there must have been something that led them to think the motive was sexual in nature, a child sex crime. Because that's they focused on was child predators. The back to the with the county road four and the dogs yeah. tracking the scent down to that road and then them when they're out looking for Shannon and it was Billy. I mean, he said that he felt the bullet whiz by his head and he was sitting on like the back of the truck, like on the tailgate. Tailgate, yeah. I mean mm-hmm. like I said, suspects everywhere (laughs) but what do you what do you make of the dogs linked with the gun the shooting well it's 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 very very suspicious you know that it sounds like possibly somebody might have been on the right track including the dogs (laughs) and but the question is is that if they picked up the scent at uh what's his name gibson Mm -hmm. they picked up the scent there then that that would be a really suspicious thing. So I don't know if they pursued that to its end or I know. there's a lot of things we don't know. I know, and it's so weird that he isn't being looked at as a suspect. But then again, yeah. that walker was found within feet of his house. Right. So Well, it's maybe it's it maybe it's somewhat like what you had said to me before is that you know you you have to have enough evidence to convict or they don't do it mm-hmm. and they're not telling anybody like you or the family or anybody else any, anything you know just the case is done no that's the only thing i can think but it's not done but <laughs> maybe with far as the police are concerned they, they they may you know i mean didn't we talk about that before they they may know who is the, a prime suspect, but they can't yeah. rule him. They don't have enough evidence. In or out. Yeah. Not enough evidence to com- actually convict in a court of law. Yeah. And that is very possible because with DNA comes a higher responsibility for prosecutors. 
a jury is looking for solid DNA evidence. And if you don't have solid DNA evidence, and some are inadmissible, like you cannot use genetic, like the genealogy type. To my knowledge, I don't think it's been actually used in a courtroom to convict someone only to find a suspect and then that DNA is, their DNA is tested. And then it is linked. See what I mean? Yes. Yep. Or the profile doesn't have enough markers on it to definitively, you know, within a percentage of a high percentage that it can only be this one single person. Mm-hmm. If they have like a partial profile. Mm-hmm. That is probably going to be thrown out on the judge overruling that. I don't right. know. I mean, that's just all speculation, but... Yeah, and then on the other side of it, wouldn't you think that the pedophiles in the neighborhood and the other neighborhood, the other trailer park down the road, were probably the first suspects, right, that were investigated? And mm-hmm. so does that mean that they grilled out all the different pedophiles in the neighborhood? And in the area, and so now they don't know. Could it be not a pedophile, you know, not a convicted pedophile or a known pedophile? Mm-hmm. Could have been somebody else that was unknown. What her aunt was saying about the directions to County Road 40. Now, she didn't know when. None of them knew when Shannon had written those, and they were not complete. But she was write, had been writing down in a notebook directions, and they were to County Road 40. And she had written down a red, she couldn't remember what it was, but it was a van. And they were looking for a Jeep. And I had asked her, do you think that's why they were looking for a red Jeep? She said she didn't know, and but that... They said that they investigated that and it went nowhere. County Road 40 is, for one, it is 21 minutes from Shannon's home. So this is nowhere she could walk to. And County Road 40 is, it's approximately 14 minutes from where her body was found. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that is the area. So if you were to turn down County Road 4 and go down to where County Road 82 to get to where her body was found, well, that back route would go right by Carl's Country Store, you know? Yeah, right. So here's a question I had when you mentioned the map. Was the map written as like a child would write it? Yes, like she was taking down directions. So it was definitely, it was definitely her. Yes, it was her. They knew it was her. And do you think she was doing it from memory? They didn't think so, just because of the way that it was written. She wouldn't know these roads without someone telling her these roads. So someone was helping her with the map. Exactly, and like t- like her aunt said, it could have been a friend. Yeah, so the reason, the question would be then, for what reason? Exactly. And so, whether that's a, mm-hmm. a pertinent 
you know, suspicion or just happenstance. It's hard to tell. I mean, if it was written by her where she was trying to leave some, like a, a clue as to where she might be, then that would be one thing. But if it doesn't look like it was something she would have wrote, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, I think she wrote it, but I think she was probably on the phone and someone was giving her directions, but right. she can't drive. So Right, it's too far to walk. Maybe she was taking down directions because she was going to ask her mom or somebody to take her there. I don't. We don't know. For whatever reason, she was writing down directions to, and they just kind of, it almost seemed like when I was talking with her about it, that she trailed off in the middle. Like she didn't finish where writing down the directions. So whoever was guiding her through the directions just stopped for some reason, probably. Yeah. I mean, there was no end destination. It was just like if you were to write down, turn right on Selma Highway, then take a left on, and then all of a sudden they stop and they don't actually lead to an address. It's got like you wrote down half of what you needed to get somewhere, but not the rest. But yeah, and that if somebody was trying to t- tell her, and she, how old was she? Eleven. So she just may not have been capable of making a map or a, you know lining it all out to make sense as they were telling her. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably why it's a little bit. Kids don't think about where stuff is and what roads at. Turn left here. Turn. They're just riding and looking outside. You know. Yeah. So it would be kind of hard for someone to mm-hmm. that age make a map either on their own or mm-hmm. someone te- telling it to them. Exactly. And, and maybe that was the lure. The person knew that she wasn't going to be able to write this down. So like, oh, well, you know what? I'll just come and pick you up. Possibly. Or if it wasn't, if that note had nothing to do with this case, it was more than likely, okay, like, I'll let me talk to your mom. Like, I'll call one of your parents and tell them or whoever was right. going to be bringing her to this place. Right. So, you know, it, the note could mean something or not mean something. You know, and all we know is that the police have told them that it led nowhere. But County Road 40, if you go down County Road 4 and you turn on Selma Highway, and then that turns into Lower Kingston and her body was found. Mm-hmm. This These roads are on the way to where her remains were found, which is just what strip, once her body was found, that's what really stuck with her family. Well, the question is, did the police pursue that? It sounds like they should have pursued it with vigor. Yeah, and I think that's that's why the frustration is there. Like I told her, they're not obligated to tell you the truth or anyone else the truth. If it's going to hurt the investigation, sometimes they are required to lie. And that Mm -hmm. is within the law. They might have had to tell you that went nowhere, but they could still be investigating that. We just simply don't know because we don't know what they know. Yeah. But I do know that they are still, you know, they are still working this case and that... 
gives me a lot of hope and um, they are following up and that is amazing. That's exactly what we want. And I, you know, and a lot of times just by discussing a case and talking about it and getting it back out there, it stirs something in the local people and they start remembering and talking and spreading the word that is the thing that breaks these cold cases wide open is just public interest right Uh, definitely true and you could think that maybe at some point there'd be enough interest built up in the case where maybe one of these professional cold case people would might get interested in it i hope so i mean i know that there's a lot of different societies that are dedicated and they have the resources and the connections to really be able to do something but a lot of times they are hampered by the same thing that a private investigator is hampered by which is if they do not deem it a cold case all of the files are not accessible Oh yeah, which is exactly which is really upsetting because to me, and I see it, and not just not just Prattville, I see it in cases all across the U.S. and abroad. They will do that on purpose because they don't want that information getting out, which I understand. But I mean, after nineteen, twenty years, sometimes thirty, and the case is going nowhere. I think that there should be a time limit on that, especially if they're not even investigating it, actively investigating it. It should be opened up to where if you have the proper license to investigate as a homicide private investigator or a cold case unit type society, why not let them have a shot at it? Yeah, well, I guess it could be like we had talked about before. The the police have closed the case at least that's what some of the files say, whether it's true or not. But if the FBI and the police department both, they know who did it, but they can't. The the prosecutor won't prosecute yeah. because it's not going to stick. It's not going to, you know, prosecutors want to win. Yeah. They don't want to lose. Mm-hmm. So if the prosecutor won't take the case to trial, then the police, you know, they think they have their suspect and they have the one that's guilty, mm-hmm. but the prosecutor don't think it's enough to convict on. And so, therefore, they close the case and it's done. Yeah. So, it would never become a cold case then unless it got forced into being one somehow. Yeah. Statistically, you know, that does happen a lot. But you've got to drag those cases back out of cold storage and retest that DNA as the advancements come along. Point where they can pull a DNA profile from hair. And I'm not talking about the hair follicle. I'm talking about the hair strand. That's how sensitive and how far we have come. So retesting everything. Say you have a shirt. You can't turn in the entire shirt. You have to pick where you think the most likely places on that shirt that you're going to get the best forensic profile, certain sample, and they will test that. And sometimes they'll be like, you know, you pick your best five samples and send those to us and we'll test them. Well, if those five samples don't come back with anything you got to get the resources and the funds to do the rest. And I hope those things have been done. 
I mean, because in this case, you've got a trash bag, you've got rope, you have underwear, you have her clothing, and you also have what was recovered of her body. Right. Well, do you you know they haven't done that, retesting? I know that they have done some, yes. Since 2001, they have done some. But have they done any lately? Because here in the last, between 2013 and 2020, right now, is when everything, yes, DNA and all of these things have been around. Even the getting a familial match from the forensic genealogy standpoint has been around since the late 80s, 90s. It's not something new. A lot of people don't know about it yet, and it was really became infamous as a tool to be used from the Golden State Killer. That's how they caught him. Even though it's been used way before they found the Golden State Killer, people don't know about it. Thinking about all of those advancements, and I do know that one article, actually there were two articles that reported that they had spoken to the crime lab is in Montgomery, Alabama. And they had wrote an article about what was said to them from the crime lab and the, and the other investigating offices. And they said that they just simply didn't have the money or the funds. And Quantico, because it is such an old case that the crime labs that they would send to were backlogged, there are so many other priorities that they put before those and they don't have the funds to test them. How can we help you get those funds? Have you done those tests after that article was published and we just don't know about it? Maybe that's what this whole exercise is for, is to build awareness for this case, put it in the forefront, and get somebody to eventually do something, sounds like. And I would like to tell our listeners that if you have done your DNA through Ancestry or 23andMe or any of those sites, please get on GEDmatch and opt in so that law enforcement can possibly use your sample to find killers. Yeah, especially people that in the, in the area that's done it in Alabama. Oh my goodness, yes. Absolutely, Dad. Right. And if you can, I've done the 23andMe and it was very inexpensive and it does help with a lot of different things and it's very good. But laws have changed and now GEDmatch is the one that law enforcement can use in invest in as an investigative tool. But with GEDmatch, you do have to opt in to share your DNA with them. And it's a very simple form. It, ta- it would take you less than five minutes to fill out, but it could save so many lives. And it could catch the killer of Shannon Polk and many, many others across the nation. The website is capital G-E-D, lowercase M-A-T-C-H, GEDmatch.com. You would simply create a profile If you have ran your DNA through other Ancestry or 23andMe, you'll know what I'm talking about. Create an account with GEDmatch, upload your raw data to GEDmatch, and then when prompted and asked if you want to opt in, you would hit yes and then fill out the release of your genetic profile form on GEDmatch. And that way, law enforcement across the country can use your DNA. Yes, and it's amazing 
or how little they need to know with that, that they can build a, a tree profile to reach way more than what a suspect would ever think he could get caught. He gets caught. Exactly. And I, I'm the most familiar with Cece Moore and her work with finding killers this way. And it is, it is a lot of work. But man, the, when they are able, because sometimes it'll go back like your fourth cousin twice removed and they will be able to narrow it down to it likely came from this family member of yours. And then from there, they can locate the most likely of people and then get search warrants for those people get convictions in these cold cases because of it. It's quite amazing. And I, I thoroughly enjoy it because I love the forensic genetics, you know, the, the yeah. genetic component to criminal study. It can be that one puzzle piece in a thousand piece puzzle that finishes the puzzle. Exactly. Yeah. You know, what was crazy. One of the names that I was tipped, we'll call him Jerry stalking his Facebook profile. And Jerry formerly lived in California, which is where CeCe Moore is from. And I'm looking at his stock in his page and on one of the things that he had posted, she liked it. CeCe Moore <laughs> did. And I mean, I was like, oh my gosh, like I thought that meant she's probably looking into this guy and she's letting him know, hey, I see you. And yeah. so I followed suit and liked the post as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sent her an email about it and come to find out after investigating a little farther, they actually went to high school together. But it was too late for me to unsend the email. So, <laughs> like, oh, well, well, maybe they weren't that close. Maybe she'll look into him anyway. <laughs> Never know. Well, thanks, no. Dapper Dad. Well, you're welcome. And thank you, Taylor, for the music. If anyone would like to hire him, shoot me an email at coldtruthpodcast at gmail.com or you can call me at 765-357-6356. I would also like to give you the tip numbers for the investigators on Shannon Nicole Polk's case. You can call the secret witness line at Prattville Police Department at 334-595-0259. You can call Detective Sergeant Tom Allen at 334-595-0256. Or you can email him at tom.com. A-L-L-E-N at P-R-A-T-T-V-I-L-L-E-A-L dot gov. You can also call the SBI, or at least try to, at 1-800-392-8011. I would give you their email, but the last time I used it, it didn't work. And if you have a number for the FBI, please let me know. Please, if you know anything about who did this to Shannon, pick up the phone and email or call. Her family has waited long enough. 
19 years have gone by without knowing and without the person who did this to Shannon being held accountable. It's time. Our goal is that by the 20th year anniversary, we are having a celebration. I do hope that you will join us on August 16th of this year at Pratt Park, 6 p.m. for the candlelight vigil for Shannon. As always, thank you for listening to Cold Truth. Have a good one.